The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello, I'm Peter Eyes. It's episode 358, the finale of season five of The Stages podcast. It's that time of year again when we haul out the holly, stuff the stockings and trim the turkey. Ho, 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 it's the Christmas episode. Kate Fitzpatrick drops in for our annual lunch and reflections, and we're also visited by Rhonda Birchmore, Tony Sheldon, Ron Crager, Lauren Schmutter, and Geraldine Turner, sprinkling their Christmas cheer and spicing up the festive period with mirth and music. It's been another wonderful year for the podcast, recording and preserving precious stories and experiences from a diverse range of creators, performers and essential supporting roles, who all contribute to the arts and entertainment on and around our stages. We've lots planned in this episode, so we best get on with the show. Kate doesn't know, but I'm going to surprise her with a blast from the past. I wonder what she's going to say. Michael Rennie was ill, the day the earth stood still. Where we stand. Gordon was there. Do you, you still remember the lyrics, obviously? Then something went wrong. Gorey Ray and King Kong, they got caught in the celluloid jam. Then at a deadly pace, it came from outer space. And this is how the message ran. I didn't expect this. Science fiction. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Double feature. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Doctor X. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The the creature. See androids fighting. Brad and Janet. In God. Forbidden planet. I know it. Nice and fiction picture show. I wanna go. Uh oh. Oh. (laughs) 
That is so funny, I love you, wow. Well, that's amazing that you still remember the lyrics. Yeah, I do. I know, I've always had a, a, you know, a pretty good memory, but, and it's funny how, I remember a lot of bits of plays and things too, kind of chunks of... How long did you do Rocky Horror? Three months, and then I had to... Uh, what was I doing? Oh, I went and did the removalist film. I started... So then I was doing the removalist while I was doing Rocky at night, and it was kind of quite a stretch. <laughs> Playing pr- prim and proper Kate. <laughs> Playing Kate, you know, a nun with a big one up, as they... <laughs> Williamson's lyric, Williamson, dialogue, famously yeah. described me, and um, my character, and in Bondi Junction, and then going to the to the theatre at night to do Rocky, and so so maybe maybe it was three four months. Not it wasn't a fabulously long time. And then I didn't see it for I don't know six weeks or something. So when I went back to see it because I'd never seen it as a member of the audience. Julie McGregor, who'd been my understudy, was playing Magenta, and I think, oh, this would be fun, you know, to see. And when I arrived in the theatre, they said, oh, my God, hi, hi, is it good? And they said, look, she's sick, can you go on? I said, excuse me? And they said, can you? I said, sure. You know, like, I do, I have done sometimes in my life. So the costume was put on and all of that and a lot more makeup, and and I thought, it was only when I was sitting dressed in that tiny costume that was too small as the um, usherette. usherette and under a kind of veil that I thought, oh my God, I haven't gone through the lyrics, you know, what I mean? and I could hear the music starting. I was thinking, oh no, what am I going to do? And um, so I was going, my granny was man. so I went through it like at rocket speed and sang it. And Reg was obviously very pleased to have me back because I think we... We went 20 minutes over because of all the ad-libs and rubbish that had gone on in between or as part of scenes that weren't really there in the past. And I had the time of my life. It was fantastic. So I never got to ever actually see it from the audience. Uh, no doubt the audience could have helped you with the lyrics if you had, <laughs> if you had tried. Well, probably even the by cultish. then. This would have been... It had been going about four months at this yeah. stage, you know, so... But it was... Um, it was fun. And it was weird doing... I remember I started it with red hair because I'd been playing um, in the Sripney Opera, Jenny Diver, and Jim had dyed my hair like black cherry. You know, the last red on the on the kind of Weller sheet yeah. was black cherry. It was like this absolutely... <laughs> I mean, I just think out of kind of, I don't know what, I, being, being peculiar, that he, instead of wearing a wig, for example, so my perfectly blonde hair that had never been dyed at all or streaked or anything was suddenly black red. And it looked good for Jenny, but then I was supposed to play Jackie's sister in The Removalist. And so they tried everything. They tried sort of streaking it, and I went like a marmalade cat, and then they tried, you know, this was while I was playing Magenta. So I started off black-red, then I went marmalade, then I went like henna, the henna did, and I went like Rita Hayworth on a kind of really incredible day. And then they suddenly thought the only way to do it was to stick my bleach like that and just go away and cross their fingers and they did and it came out I'm not kidding white and so white that my blonde roots were black and it just stood like this like out like a, the afro you know like the hair poster and I had to leave them and go and do the show that night well it didn't matter because it was rocky you know everything thought it was fine and the next day they put it you know tint it colored it and tried to make it calm it down and um somehow it all stayed in my head but it was to the point of being 
it feels like soap when it's about to snap off at the roots. That's how it got to that um, consistency. <laughs> <laughs> but then I ended up, like, the first day of shooting of the removals, I mean, I look as I've got perfectly good blonde hair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, have you seen many productions of Rocky Horror over the decades? I've only seen one. And two. I'm lying. One was about 20 years after we'd done it. And was that with Daniel Ebenieri? I think it was. Yeah. And I think it was at the Theatre Royal. Yeah. And and I thought, oh, this would be fun, you know. And I went in, all the lights were on. The, it was like, and they were ushering it, sat you in your actual chair and didn't take your, you know, ice creams or stuff. And I was thinking, oh, and it was bright light, you know, and, and then the lights dimmed a bit and, and then it looked, well... And like, Rocky's a very different experience nowadays, isn't it? To the oh, one that, that, Disneyland. That you create. Yeah. Absolutely. When we did it, it was in that old cinema and... Uh, in Glebe. In Glebe. And uh, the new art cinema. And when you went in, Brian Thompson had the interior as if it was being demolished. So that it was very dark and there were no exit signs or anything that anyone could find. And there were scaffolds all the way down the sides and it had bits of bag hanging on it. And it looked like it was being demolished and it, they'd started quite a time ago. I mean, there was even rubble in the aisles. I mean, incredible when you think about it today. The usherettes and ushers all wore masks as if they'd been in a terrible fire and their face had melted off and they didn't speak. And they would actually take your tickets, shine the torch in your eyes, rip your tickets in half and force you to sit apart and wherever they wanted, <laughs> take your chocolates, take your program, rip your... Pro they did unbelievable. People were just shocked. Like the, it sounds like a very immersive experience. Oh, it was. I mean, yeah. but by the time they, they were jittering, by the time, and at the end of it, and it was full of dust. It looked as though you know, it was smoke. So it looked as though it was incredibly dusty, and it had acme demolition sort of. Thing. And the band were up on the uh, scaffolding, and uh, the, at the end there was this kind of old, very old kind of velvet curtain that was way past its good days, you know, the, and sort of the, the fringe hanging off and everything. And they were sitting there going, oh, my God. None of them had ever seen anything, anything like it. Yeah. And and suddenly it started. And, of course, they were just, like, swamped with all of this stuff. And it was so funny. I mean, you know, people came again and again just to have that kind of fun. And when I saw it, and it was in this bright light, and we were all sitting there in the theatre all going, you know, waiting for it, and the curtains, and it's kind of, I, I recognised the music, I knew all the dialogue, I knew the characters and everything, but I thought, my God, I'm so sorry for all of you people, why didn't you see it? Even though I hadn't. You know, you could see their shocked faces if you were on the stage, people going, oh, <laughs> she did stuff. <laughs> well, it's coming back in 2023, in well, February. I um, know we'll it is. We'll see it at Theatre Royal, Crossroads Live, for presenting it. Well, I saw, I saw it on, the only other time I saw it was on the some anniversary, like, was it the 30th? Yes. And and then it had turned into literally Disneyland, you know, yeah. with cutouts and kind of, you know, I thought, oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. I hope it has some of that old... It looked so grubby. Like, it looked like... I mean, all these people looked as if they'd gone to see a really kind of dirty film. <laughs> well, in a way, it was. Well, it was a dirty <laughs> film. They looked like people who should be wearing Max. You know what I mean? In the yes, audience. Yes, kind of, yes. And I love that. that. It added a lot of stuff to it. Right. But that was all Brian Thompson yeah. and Jim. So. Yeah. Well, Kate Fitzpatrick, welcome back. Thank you. That's the...
Oh, look at that. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. The, um, it was my fault that we had such a loud noise. Season five uh, finale and, and the Christmas episode of uh, of the Stages podcast. Um, and you are an annual tradition now, so... Hooray! <laughs> Hooray. How's your year been? It's been strange. I mean, I've had a wonderful time with my adored two-year-old granddaughter once Chew. a week. The, the Chew. Mm-hmm. I love the Chew very much. And she loves Gwenny and we have fun once a week. And I've done quite a lot of voiceover work, which has sort of managed to push back the barriers of the pension a little. <laughs> and I've had audition for a lot of things I didn't get. So it's been... Um, and I've written a bit and... Uh, have you escaped COVID? I've never had it. Never had it yet. Thank no. God. Touch wood, touch wood. Touch wood. Touch I mean, wood. where's some wood? The table. No, tables. No, no. Oh, my God. Your straw hat there. <laughs> Oh, there's the, the leg of the, the table. The leg of the table, yeah. That's good. All right, good. You'll be fine now for a, <laughs> a few more months. Yeah. Um, uh, a big year that saw um, the the exit of Queen Elizabeth II. Exactly, um, exactly. Now, you'd met Queen Elizabeth, hadn't you? I, I did indeed. I was given the Queen's Jubilee Medal, and I was, um, as I've explained before to your listeners, that I managed to kind of not let Patrick White discover... And I went to dinner on the Britannia, and because I couldn't resist it, I just thought, how fantastic. And it was the most extraordinary night. I went with Brett and Wendy, who were, let's say, a little under the weather. Brett and, uh, and Wendy, Wendy Whiteley, Whiteley, yes. Uh, on the night. But Brett was wearing the first suit he'd worn since he was at school, which was a navy uh, blue velvet suit. And he was incredibly proud of it. And he had this drawing tucked under his arm of circular key at night, the most wonderful ink drawing, and of a boat exactly where the Britannia was, opposite the Opera House, in at the Opera House. And he intended giving this to the Queen, in spite of, well, I don't think he'd ever read whatever the, the rules were, yes, yeah. but he thought he'd just give it to her when he saw her. Just hand it across the table. Yeah, and of course it had to go into bomb rooms and, you know, yeah. it had to be handed in weeks before to be sort of tested for anthrax and whatever, you know. And so... I was thinking, oh dear, this is interesting. We went in his Jensen, so that it has that slopey kind of back, you know. And you had about five stiffies to give to people to, you know, before you're allowed in. What's it, a stiffy? An, one of those card invitations, very hard card invitations right. that, will, that will stand up on, oh, that's what the poms call them, right. stand up on mantelpieces. They're right. called stiffies. Well, they used to be. They're probably not called stiffies anymore because I think it means something else. And um, anyway, they were called stiffies. And uh, so we, and when we arrived, there was no, there were no people on the, um, it was before all those restaurants and all that stuff had happened. There were just big sheds there at Circuit Key. And um, I thought, where are the people? Because we got out of the car and, and they were all inside the open door of one of the sheds sort of peering out. And there was this boat, this incredible boat where you could look in the the hull, you know, and see your face. It was like a mirror, this beautiful dark blue, and a dog-legged kind of staircase going up, and two lamps either side, like very old-looking, incredible lamps. And you thought, wow. So we stood, because we weren't going to join the people who looked as if they were waiting for the next boat. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so we thought, no, we're getting on this one. Then the Queen arrives, and she waves, and they don't wave back, so Brett and Wendy and I went back. So then we all started boarding and there were three admirals at the top who were piping the Queen aboard, who piped us aboard. That was, I think, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. It was so terrific. Then he went round the back of the boat to the Opera House side and there was a mirror. And by the time you'd sort of thought, oh, what does my hair look like? You were suddenly being presented to Prince Philip. 
And the minute you got into a kind of curtsy, it, you know, they announced your name and he said, good evening, he said to me. But I was probably the youngest person on the boat. <laughs> and it had several notes in it. And the Queen actually looked at him while he said it. But by that time I was turned and there was the Queen. I went, oh, so I went down to the Queen and she was so amazing. You can see what a great horsewoman she was because she literally held my hand and I came up to the next person. Like she turned me like you'd turn a horse's head or something. Wow. I know that was pretty impressive. Yeah. And then during the course of the evening, oh, I remember the roses. They had pink roses in one salon and red in the other. And they were all perfectly three-quarter open, unbelievably perfumed, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of roses in these big vases everywhere. I mean, it must have been every rose in the country, plus half of South America must have been, like, literally there. And um, I was having a good time because a young um, lieutenant, whose dad was one of the admirals, had took a bit of a shine to me, and he kept pouring Bollinger into my... Ardy Bollinger, absolutely unbelievable Bollinger, into my glass. And at one stage, I went to stand back and thought, looked down and thought, oh, my God! And Because th there was a green chiffon floor-length dress and I thought there's only one person wearing green on this boat so I lurched and found myself with my head beside the royal head and um, lurched back again and said oh without you had to wait till she spoke to you I didn't do that I said please excuse me mum if I'd been a half an inch closer I could have swallowed that emerald because <laughs> she had these unbelievable she had an emerald green dress but she had this you know that suite of emeralds she was wearing the famous one gigantic earrings and necklace and yeah. you know and she just laughed she literally laughed ahead of and of course what I then I thought she'd move on but no then I was forced to be in this little group with her so you, you can't leave until you're told to rack off really so I I was sort of traveled around the kind of this salon because she and Prince Philip did sort of figure eights like that. And once they'd completed both, they were, it was all over, you know. She was funny and she was very down to earth and really charming and really kind of had the most... When I ha had that brief moment cheek to cheek, it was literally like sort of looking at, at a dish of peaches and cream. You know how they said that about? It seriously was. You felt like licking her face. It was so beautiful. It I'm was, glad you did. I know. That would, that would be straight off the boat. And uh, it was. And I, I liked her a lot. I thought she was really on top of it all. You know, really kind of smart and really kind of. And what a job. Yeah. I mean, how difficult. So I, I was up. I was upset when she died. You know, not. I mean. It was clear it was coming and yeah. all that stuff. And it was close to my mother dying. And my mother was a bit... Oh, my mother was 99.94. Bradman's average. Wow. Ironically, she used to watch him as a child at the Adelaide Oval. And, and the Queen was a bit younger, but not much. You know, five years or something. And I thought it was sad and everything. And watched that incredible, incredible funeral. I thought, it, my God. Stage managed with an energy. Oh, oh. Yeah. I mean, the Poms do that better no one else can do that, yes, like that, that that pomp and ceremony yeah. that pageantry is just uh, and simplicity beautiful. Yeah. you know one of my friends said oh I mean look at those flowers on the coffin you know and I said aren't they incredible yeah. they said what do you mean I said they must have been taken from all the royal I didn't even know but there were roses and there were all myrtle and all of these things oak and all this stuff that meant stuff to her that someone had gone around and picked so it was like a big not a florist. It was like a free bunch yep. by someone she knew or something. Person, Personalised. Uh, Absolutely. Every single thing meant rose. Every single thing 
in it, and a lot of it came from Prince Charles's Hygro. Uh, and I think that what I think that either he or he and someone deliberately chose what was there, and it looked like that. It looked beautiful. But very special memories, Kate, of a very <laughs> special woman. Yes, I think so. Yeah. 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 Well, the podcast has been going from strength to strength. I'm glad about that. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Uh, can you believe that this year we hit 200,000 listens? <gasps> well, it doesn't surprise me, but I'm thrilled. Congratulations. Yeah, that's fantastic. You. Yeah, I'm, wow. I, I'm delighted that um, it's uh, garnering such a, a strong listenership. and um, certainly. But I think it should be. I was telling the taxi driver on the way here, hmm. he said, what are you doing? You know, And I thought could be doing anything it's none of your business you know? <laughs> I said, well, as a matter of fact I'm going to see this friend and he does this podcast and it's all about and he said about I said about anybody some of them very famous some of them no one have ever heard of some of them are old and people have forgotten them and I said this wonderful man you interviews these people about their life in the theatre and their contribution and it's not just actors and producers and directors and designers it's people backstage and people yeah, yeah, you know yeah. I said it's the most incredible thing he said Oh, goodness. He said, how long? I said, I've been doing it a few years. I said, it's like an encyclopedia because no one else has done it. They've done the odd interview. I've done the odd interview with the radio and TV people, you know, in, in the past. Not what you do. I think it's seriously wonderful. Well, I think the long-form interview allows you to really um, drill into somebody's <laughs> psyche and, and story and, and anecdote, which... Yeah, I um, think so too which we've done so often with you, which is, is fantastic. <laughs> thank you for thank your generosity of, of candid experience. Absolutely, no problem. Anytime you want. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> and, of course, we got to do it at the Vivid Festival this year with a series of live conversations. Yes, I'm so, sorry I didn't see that. Oh, no, that's all right. But, but your voice was, was My, used was it? in the acknowledgement of country, as it is in every episode. So um, oh. people are very familiar with uh, with your voice, Kate. Oh, that's good. Um, and I must thank Gil Minervini at... Um, at Vivid for um, entrusting us uh, with that opportunity to be part of the program, and Kate Gall, who was um, my uh, production assistant on uh, on that series of interviews, it was fantastic. Well, I wasn't here is the reason I wasn't there. No, exactly. Yes, no, no, you had a good excuse. No, I checked you out. It was fine. <laughs> it was fine. It was fine. Okay, um, we've got lots to. Um, to what's planned for the, for yes. this episode. Okay. Um, so we'll have a, a, a break now, and um, I'll throw you over to a conversation that um, I had uh, earlier in the month with the wonderful Rhonda Birchman. Pull out the holly, put up the tree before my spirit falls again. Fill up the stocking, I may be rushing things, but deck the whole
three of my favourite things, Jerry Herman, a big band, and Rhonda Birchmore, all culminating in Rhonda's new album, A Red Hot Swing in Christmas, in which she is joined by the Jack Earl Big Band. And to tell us more, the woman who is Christmas, hello, Rhonda B. Hello, Peter, and hello, all your lovely listeners. It's a, it's always great to have you on um, the Christmas episode of Stages because, you know, I think as we've discussed before, you know, Christmas to me is Santa Claus and um, and Plum Pudding and, and Rhonda Birchmore. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I love you for that. I do love getting into a it, – it's a perfect excuse to wear the most glamorous, uh, gorgeous gowns as well as sing, you know, your – favorite songs and and uh yeah i i love christmas so yeah thank you for having me i i got your album back in uh november and uh, i've listened to it a few times now and uh, look it's i must say it's sensational i think my favorite christmas album uh forever has been the glenn glenn miller uh christmas album but i think he's been surpassed congratulations my, and thank my you gosh that's pretty damn big shoes and uh if you knew only knew the kind of circumstance that we recorded that album. Um, you know, for me, it is a Christmas miracle that we've actually got it out this year uh, and had all those wonderful musicians playing live on that album uh, that we recorded in three days. Yeah, I, we were able to share one number last year, but um, mm. I, I know that this has been a project that you've been working on for, for several years, but impeded by, of course, pesky COVID. Yeah, well, we, we were to go into the studio. We were cancelled six or seven times last year. And, and that one song, I think it was I'll Be Home for Christmas, um, we, being in the most lockdown uh, city in the world here in Melbourne, um, we were allowed in one little time we could have, we could meet up with one friend or, or I don't know what they used to call that, like a, I don't know, a, a special pass if you had one friend you could visit. And uh, Jack and I recorded that one song as a, you know, for um, some of the people that were saying, you know, because we promised the album. And so um, that was like a little token little thing that we did. And then we finally got into the recording studio, Pete, and um there were grown men, well, they're all grown men, 20 of them, tears, because they hadn't played together live as a section in nearly two years. And to play um, these songs, it was they were so thrilled and it was really moving, actually, um, to be down at Alan Eaton's, which is this rundown, I mean, so much history in that wonderful, uh, those studios, but in St Kilda, but the... The, the ceiling was all damp, it was kind of falling in and there were rats, and I'm not talking about COVID rat tests, there were actual rats <laughs> running through. Um, and the guys did it for mates' rates. Um, Jack and I financed it ourselves. Jack wrote their most amazing arrangements. And and we had the, well, mummy Rhonda said, um, I'm going to send this off to the ABC because I think it, is kind of a good fit for them because no one's, you know, uh, you know, investing in, you know, music uh, production these days here on, on our kind of scale. And, and they heard one track, um, We Need a Little Christmas, and uh, they said, we love this. There's nothing like it. We are going to um, get behind it and distribute it. So that was a really lovely thing. Well, the listeners would have heard um, We Need a Little Christmas in the, in the lead-up to this conversation now with, with you. Um, I, I love it. It opens like an MGM musical. 
I think it's a uh, change the season to reality. Like as a big band. Yeah, it is very exciting, and I think that's the the thing that uh, is so amazing about Jack Hull, who's twenty five. Um, that he is just he is like a super talented. That we, you know, because I I'd done Mame. Um, and and sung that song of course as Auntie Mame, um, and it's always usually a umpa umpa umpa. And I thought, oh, what are you going to do to make that into a swing number, Jack? And uh, he came back twenty four hours later. He said, "What about this?" And I went, "Oh my gosh, yes, let's do that." So, um, and that's pretty much um, the other tr another track that really astounded me with Jack um, is. Uh, one called the Christmas Blues, and that is a very unrecorded Christmas song. Um, but the lyrics caught me because I thought, you know, Pete, not everyone has a fabulously happy, wonderful Christmas. Some people are probably by themselves and very lonely, and I thought the lyric in that um, was just so lovely. And I, I think Dean Martin had recorded it, but very few others. And um, I said, Jack, how's, how about this song? And I thought I'd get a similar kind of um, Dean Martin, you know, arrangement. But he said, well, you know, Rhonda, it's called The Christmas Blues. I am going to arrange it like a, a New Orleans funeral march in the style of like a Harry Connick thing. And I said, you've got to be kidding, a funeral march for, for this, this song. And, well, my gosh, I had to eat my words because I think it's one of my – a fabulously innovative um, way to do that song. It's wonderful to see such knowledge and such skill in someone so young as Jack. Um, what, what a genius he is. And uh, it uh, all augurs well for the future that we have a musician of such, uh, such talent. Uh, how did you meet Jack? I met Jack. Um, I did a little gig uh, down in Melbourne and I, was given one of his songs to sing, uh, Too Darn Hot, well, well, one of his arrangements to do. He didn't write the song, of course. Uh, and I thought, oh, this is a really neat arrangement. It's a little bit different. And uh, I kind of investigated about a little, you know, more about this chap. He was 20 at that stage. And he said, oh, come on, Rhonda, um, why don't you come down and w sing with my big band? And I thought, you've got a big band at 20. And uh, <laughs> so I got up and sang with him. He'd had that big band, Pete, since he was 11 years old. Um, his dad was in his big band, but now his, his dad doesn't play well enough, so he's got rid of his dad. But his mum and his dad are musicians. Um, I just thought this guy uh, is something else. And his, uh, he went to um, Juilliard. Um, he, you know, he does, he was the assistant musical director on uh, Dream Lover and he's currently been doing the same on Hairspray. He's just, his knowledge to jump from musical theatre to jazz to all sorts is, um, yeah, he's, I think we are going to, you know, I, I hope, you know, I wish him well for his career because I think it's just the, the start of it. There are a lot of great numbers on the album. Uh, cool Yule, Merry Christmas Baby, The Man with the Bag, Let It Snow. Um, you must have a favourite number and perhaps not necessarily on the album. What's what's What says Christmas to you in a Christmas song? What says Christmas to me 
on this album, I had to do it, uh, was Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Uh, this is a song that, as long as I can remember in the Birchmore household, it was always played, the Judy Garland version of it. And I got to sing that song so many on so many carols by candlelight. And I guess I, I said to Jack, that is one that has to be on because, uh, you know, my family, my mum, my dad, my sister are no longer this. And uh, that's kind of I played the trombone very badly, I, I, I think, um, or, or just as a, like a side thing um, with the Tivoli, um, just to hear, and mum and dad love big bands, and to hear uh, the little girl, you know, uh, you know, sing that song with um, Jack, uh, you know, they're so you know. I think they would be very, very proud of that one. So that that's my sentimental favourite. And though we're we're almost at Christmas Day and, and Christmas Eve, uh, listeners can still access your album, can't they, through um, Apple, iTunes, and um, through the ABC shop. And uh, certainly, you're, you're streaming it, aren't you, through those streaming services? Spotify. And the other thing too, uh, I know a little. Uh, another friend of mine called Peter no 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 my Peter you um you can get actually uh signed copies I'm an old-fashioned girl if you want the hard copy with uh, a, a Christmas wish I uh, if you go to rondabirchmore.com I'm more than happy to to sign those and put them in as soon as I get the orders I I'm like Mrs Claus I go down to the letterbox and pop them in there and uh and you get a bit of a Rhonda stamp on there too. So um, uh, if yeah, if you want one of those, or you can stream it, or, or go to your, your good shops to get one. Yes, I, I, I got a few which I've stuffed into stockings for this Christmas. I think it's a, an ideal, excellent, uh, ideal Christmas gift. Um, and, and of course, if listeners miss out this year, um, it's always going to be part of the Christmas catalogue, isn't it? And it will join Christmas albums for eternity. Well, I hope so, Pete. I mean, uh, I did a, a, a podcast with uh, a chap in uh, America and who has just got a Christmas program. That's all he does all year is Christmas music. And he was knocked out by the album. So, And he reckons hopefully it will, you know, the, the same that you said, you know, it will take off and, and every year Christmas comes. So hopefully uh, people will put it on their uh, playlist. Now, you know, I'm fond of Rhonda, especially seeing her blonder. Uh, tell us about your hairspray journey and how that's going so far, because you're playing Miss Baltimore Crabs and you've just finished a season in Melbourne and about to open in Adelaide any minute. Yes, um, New Year's Eve is the the, the official opening. Um, it is a great show. I mean, you cannot but help love the music Uh it is joyous to see the, you know, we've been playing the Regent Theatre in Melbourne and we're having, you know, uh, over one and a half thousand people jump to their feet every night and uh, to, you know, you can't stop the beat. I mean, it, it's it's one hit after the other. It's uh, a great cast with Shane Jacobs and uh, Todd McKenney. Uh, we've got Bobby Fox on board for Adelaide um, and a wonderful new discovery in a girl called Carmel Rodriguez, who's playing Tracy. Um, she's sensational. And the whole cast is just, uh, it's the original um, production 20-odd uh, years ago, and uh, we breathe, I think, fresh energy into it. So it's it's, it's a great um it's a great show. I play the baddie, though. I, 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 you know, he's boo. She's wrong in every sense of everything. She's the 
a bigot, a racist. She's hideous. But um, someone has to play that. And um, I, I put that blonde wig on and, uh, yeah, I kind of really enjoy it. And I believe you've even dressed up a Barbie doll as Miss Baltimore Crabs, looking at your uh, your social media. Oh. Yes, uh, you know, I have a, a, a big Barbie collection. And uh, one day in between scenes, I thought, oh, she is a bit like Barbie, oh, uh, Velma Von Tussel. So I've created with scraps of my fabric um, my own uh, Velma Von Tussel Barbie and Amber, the girl that plays my daughter, Brianna Bishop, um, She's I've got her hooked. She's made her own one. I'm going through the whole cast and, uh, well, not 35 of them, of course, but um, I, I've got Shane, I've got Todd well underway. Um, yes, this is, uh, this is Mummy's project through through uh, in between scenes um, to, you know, of, of the run of Hairspray because we, we were in Adelaide and then, of course, um, hopefully you will be there uh, opening night, Pete. I'll make sure you are, um, for Sydney. Uh, so we've got to run there too. Yeah, can't wait. We can't wait. I, it's one of my favourite shows and um, I'm, I know that you will be wonderful or are wonderful thus far. Um, Rhonda, thank you for joining us once again and sharing some of your uh, your tunes um, in this Christmas episode. Uh, continued triumph to you uh, with Hairspray and a very, very Merry Christmas to you and, and your family. Thank you so much, Peter, and much love to you and Happy New Year and all things good to you and all your listeners as well. Thank you. Have yourself a merry little Christmas Let your heart be light From now on our troubles They'll be out of sight Have yourself Merry little Christmas Make the Yuletide gay From now on our troubles They'll be miles away Happy golden days of your
faithful friends who are dear to us, gather near to us once more. In the years we all will be together if the fate allows. Tony Sheldon, Sheldy, how lovely to see you! Happy Christmas! Happy Christmas, Peter. Um, have you wrapped your presents? Are you are you um up to date? We we don't really do presents because the only people we see are my mum. Um, so uh, um, and uh, it's usually just books. Uh, so um, uh, yes, we 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 tend not to do the present thing. We mostly just uh, have a lovely Christmas day with mum. Uh, I cook and um, we sit around. We'll probably be playing this broadcast to her and uh, and then we get on the train and go home. <laughs> oh, fantastic. Your, your mum, of course, the wonderful Tony Lamond, and um, wish her a happy Christmas from from all of us at Stages and, and the listeners because I'm sure they're, they're all big fans and um, they would uh, love to be mentioned. Oh, how lovely. And she will be thrilled. She, she always says to me, oh, I don't think people remember me anymore. And because uh, um, she's 90 now. But yeah. I said, my darling, you know, honestly, I said, when whenever like one of her old numbers or something appears on YouTube, there's always a huge reaction. So, uh, uh, yeah, she is. She is beloved. She is indeed. Now, as an actor, a favourite of our actors, um, have you ever played Father Christmas in your your long career? Strangely, only once, and I wrote it for myself. Um, we did a review at the old Nimrod that became Belvoir Street uh, in 1980. Tony Taylor and I and Robin Mose and Deirdre Rubenstein wrote a show called You and the Night and the Housewine, and it was a Christmas show. It was commissioned by John Bell and Neil Armfeld, and... Um, uh, Armfield, sorry, and uh, I wrote <laughs> myself. That's um, Madame Armfield. Madame, Madame Neil, um, <laughs> and I wrote a sketch as um, as Santa Claus, who was um, uh, his wife came to visit him and said, you know, you're never you're never home, and uh, you're always with the children, and and it was sort of a neglected wife sketch, which was very touching. And then Tony at the end of it sang. Tony Taylor sang Have Yourself a Merit of the Christmas wistfully at the end. And uh, then when we revived the show at Rose's nightclub in 1985, uh, Peter Tapano played Mr. Santa Claus. So that's the only time. But I've done a lot of Christmas shows um, in New York. Um, I did a version of Christmas Carol. I was the ghost of Christmas Present. And I did a musical called A Charles Dickens Christmas in which I played Charles Dickens' father, John Dickens. Um, so... And of course, all those Tilbury reviews that we did, all those Christmas pantos at the Tilbury. But Santa only showed his face once. Yes. I, what? <laughs> well, there's there's still time for there another is. Santa. There is now, as I am an aged, white-haired, bearded 
<laughs> jolly old man. <laughs> You've been back in Australia a few years now after several years in, in New York City. Um, it's a wonderful place to spend Christmas. Uh, you obviously had several Christmases there. Nobody does Christmas like New York, do they? Nobody does. It's the, it's the tradition of it as well that uh, the same things happen every Christmas. So there's that sense of anticipation as Christmas comes in New York of the Christmas windows on Fifth Avenue, you know, what 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 joys are we going to see at Saks and and uh, all, all those, the Lords and Tailors and all, all those, they're very elaborate, it's very exciting. And um, the tree that goes up at Rockefeller Centre and there's the um, the ice rink opens at, at, at Rockefeller Centre, so everybody's skating. And uh, the Christmas markets, which we don't have here, and I think would probably do very well here, but um, they're very beautiful, especially in Bryant Park, where um, you people can actually go and do their Christmas shopping at these beautiful markets that, that open. And of course, the um, the tradition of the Radio City Rockettes, uh, they do their Christmas Christmas shows every year and they've got their traditional numbers they do the, the tap number of the 12 days of Christmas mm-hmm. um, and there's uh, the dancing Santa Clauses that are projected on the screen behind them so that there are multiple like mirror images of, of Santa Clauses and there's the whole nativity scene that comes up from the ground and they've got real animals they've got camels and donkeys and, and things like that so there's it's like every year you go and you see the same things and uh the same christmas decorations are always out on the streets it's uh it's thrilling that whole thing of the snow and and the lights in the snow and the trees filled with lights it's uh it's unbeatable yeah it's a beautiful tradition in new york um new york of course being the home of the broadway musical and i i, I was um a couple of weeks ago i i had the iron out i was doing my ironing and i always play a a broadway cast recording and i chose she loves me on this day and uh, and it struck me because it's a huge well it's set at christmas time and there's a huge christmas sequence in the middle uh, with shoppers etc and it got me wondering about what are the other musicals broadway musicals which feature which are set at christmas time or which feature a, a christmas song and i said i know my mate tony sheldon will obviously <laughs> have an extensive list so um and that's why we're chatting today so Shelley, why do you think um, the festive season is such ripe fodder for the Broadway musical? Why do we see it come up so often? Well, I think it's very emotive. Um, those they, they bring up high emotions. It's all about family and friends coming together, um, celebrating each other, the, the whole thing about joy, um, building memories for the future, especially for children. Um, New New Year coming up, meaning new hope for the future. Um, the, the gift of giving, you know, it's better to give than to receive. So there are lessons to be learned. But also um, it's it's about stress and, and uh, for people who don't have those families and the comfort of homes, it's, it's, um, it's about loneliness. So it's, uh, in, you know, lack of self-esteem. So emotions are running high around Christmas and um, it, that is great dramatic fodder for for a show and and also a lot comic fodder so um, for 12 days to Christmas um, in She Loves Me which is a countdown 
um, of people who've left their Christmas shopping to the last minute. Uh, it's it's and it's the whole story is building towards the lovers who we have seen from the beginning of the show who don't like each other and have unknowingly been writing love letters to each other as pen pals without knowing the other person's identity. It's all heading towards, are they going to find it? When are they going to meet each other? When are they going to meet? So the, the whole Christmas thing is leading towards Christmas Eve and they, they're out in the snow and they've closed the shop and we'll have a wonderful Christmas. And then that is the moment that they reveal to each other that they know who that they are dear friend and they clutch each other in their arms and the snow falls and everybody's happy. It's it's a wonderful use of drama to, you know, the context for, for that. Oh, the great Tony Sheldon. Wonderful to, uh, to catch up with Tony. Now, that's just a, a brief excerpt from um, a full episode, episode 357, which is the episode preceding this one. It was released yesterday. Um, so I, I advise you, encourage you to listen to it in its entirety, where Sheldy talks about a whole canon of musical theatre fair where uh, Christmas is a, a location or a setting or indeed one of the songs in the show. Have you ever worked with Tony Sheldon, Kate? No, I just know him. I think he's wonderful. Always wanted to. Yeah. Uh, there's still time. I know. There's there is. Time. I know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, Christmas time, of course, is the, the time of the year at the moment. Um, and this is the perfect companion episode as people wrap their gifts and uh, prepare for uh, <laughs> Christmas Day. Um, Christmas days. I, I reflect on mine. And did you ever have a kiddies table and an adult's table? Oh, yes. Because, you know, the house will be full of relatives. And you had to put everybody somewhere, and eventually would you would you would graduate to the adult table. Absolutely, yeah. we had exactly that at my grandmother's house. So there'd be a big round table that adults sat at, and the smaller table that all these. Well, I was the oldest of five, and there were six younger than me. So literally, eleven of them were crammed around this, um, or ten of them, were cram because I managed to graduate at about thirteen, I think, to sit at the big one. And my grandmother. Nonna was a very, un, you know, very unusual woman in some ways. So she would have all the glasses that you would possibly ever drink, like champagne, white wine, red wine, thing, and they were lined up, you know, with the setting. So every adult setting. So I'd be sitting there with a setting like that, and of course not given any drinks except my grandmother used to just slide hers in my direction because she didn't drink very much. And I actually was drinking. Ugh, no wonder I can't drink creme de menthe. Creme de menthe made by the monks in the Adelaide Hills. You know, drinking like it was a home brew. Boo! It was ugh. like mouthwash. Oh, exactly. <laughs> mint is something that I abs. I can't even eat mint and chocolates, and and those things. You remember those drinks that I only ever had once. Many years later, when we were filming Boney, and it was made. It was called a. Uh, what was it called? But it was creme de menthe and cream. Oh my god. Ooh. I was ill for about a week after that. Ooh. Grasshopper, it was called. Is that a grasshopper? Yes, yeah. yes. They were Absolutely. green. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's creme de menthe makes it green. Mm. But I, I do remember those. The worst thing about those Christmases with all the family was that the there were three of my cousins who were learning the violin, and we used to have to sit in the oh, living room. Oh, for a family concert. Oh, it was excruciating. It was like... I mean, they would go on and on. It would go on for half an hour or something. Yeah. It was like, honestly, 
you're sitting there with trying to pretend you weren't having you didn't have your fingers in your ears. It was awful. Yeah. My grandfather would be four sheets to the wind. Isn't that a lovely expression? Four I love sheets it. to the wind. I know. Uh, and launch into Please Release Me. That was an <gasps> annual tradition too. It wasn't a Christmas song as such. But, but how fantastic. But Please Release Me, yeah. And you can see that him, like those great yachts with all those sails, you know, sort of barging ahead and singing. <laughs> I think that's fantastic. Wow. Do you have a favourite Christmas song or carol? You know, it's weird. I, I love Adeste Fideles and I love Silent Night and I love... It, I, it's weird. Christmas... I don't kind of think about Christmas songs because I suppose being brought up a Catholic and and then having most of, as an adult most of my kind of religious experiences have been in high Anglican churches. You know what I mean? So because so it's still Latin. I still kind of I love that. Oh, come all ye Co- faithful. Come all ye faithful. Mm-hmm. And I think it's um. I can still sing about three Latin masses. Mind you, two are for the dead in Latin <laughs> that we learned at school. We used to have to go and sing for the big funerals in the cathedral. At Christmas time? Well, whenever they popped off, really. Right. Sometimes it was. Okay. Let's get a bit cheery. <laughs> um, what about a Christmas movie? Well, I used to love some really dreadful kind of, you know, rom com ones. And my favourite was Love Actually. Yeah, well, a lot of people love Love Actually. Absolutely. Because I loved a lot of the actors, you know. It's a great cast. Great cast. Mm. And and some of the jokes, you know, kind of good. And some of the dialogue. And so I thought, last night, I thought, maybe I'll just have a look at it. And uh, about ten minutes in, I thought, oh, my God, I just can't stand this anymore. I can't stand this kind of moping person or this whinger or this person who's not kind of standing up for themselves or, or whatever. You know what I mean? I kind of... I couldn't believe... That very handsome man who's photographing the wedding. And originally I thought, oh my God, that's so sad and so lovely. And then after a while I thought, oh my God, just grow a pair, mate. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's just like, and even when he grew a pair, he kind of backed off it. Yeah. So yeah. it's kind of, uh, I don't know. So maybe I'm just getting really old and No, it's, look, that, that's a film that divides people. They either love it or, or they hate love, actually. Um, and it's interesting, isn't it, that we can, we can return to films... Um, uh, decades later and have a very different opinion or reaction. That's right. Or yeah. see them too many times. Yeah. And then after you know all the dialogue, you know what's going to happen. And you yeah. think, my God, why didn't you... I mean, why doesn't one of the world's great actresses tell that buffet of her husband? You know what I mean? I mean, why Why was she such a saint? No wonder no one's ever asked me to marry. Oh, no, that's not true. Nine people didn't. I said no. No wonder I never got married. You know what I mean? Yeah, nine people asked you to marry. Yeah, right? one, one six times. Right. Yeah. Oh, but I well, that. does that count? That's really. Oh no, that's that. Well, that be four. Four people have asked you to marry. No, no, nine plus, but one of them, one of right. the nine, yeah, asked six times. Right. I said no every time, but <laughs> <laughs> see, I'm obviously not the right material for yeah. this. You know what I mean? I think at least one of them. I do regret not being, not saying one yes to at least one of them. I think one or two. Vaguely regret. <laughs> no regrets. Um, no, rien de rien. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, the Mousetrap, did you see that when it played the, the Theatre Royal in Sadly, Sydney recently? no. I saw it in London years ago, like mm. 30 maybe. And, and I meant to. And I couldn't go on the night I was asked. And presumed it was going to have a very long run. So uh, sadly missed the boat in many directions as it, 
as it turned out. What's well, a terrific production. This is Crossroads Live production, which is um, touring Australia at the moment. And um, a wonderful cast directed by Robin Evan and uh, Jerry Connolly is in it. And yes. Alex Rathgaber. Oh, uh, Charlotte Friels. It's wow. an extraordinary cast. Colin and Judy's a little Colin girl. Colin and Judy's a little oh girl. Oh, my yeah. God. Making a professional debut in, in The Mousetrap, I think. Well, I saw her in an Ida thing and didn't know who she was and said, oh, my God, who's that fantastic girl? And they said, oh, that's Colin. I said, no wonder. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I literally, luckily, had said how terrific she was before I knew who. Who mum and dad were so well. Adelaide audiences uh, can catch the mouse trap. Um, it's about to open. I think it's New Year's Eve, so oh. it's it's playing Adelaide al- along with Hairspray uh, in the next month. Perfect combination. Perfect combination. Um, another favourite of of stages is Geraldine Turner, uh, of course. Well, she is one of the great, wonderful people of all time. I think. Yeah, and I, I caught up with Geraldine to talk about uh, the mouse trap, how it's been going, and also. The 50th anniversary of Her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney, which is unfortunately now demolished in this apartment block. I know. But I it, worked there. It opened. I loved it. it opened the same night as um, a little night music, ah. which Geraldine played Petra. Oh. I shall marry the miller's son. Pin my hat on a nice piece of property. Friday nights for a bit of fun We'll go dancing Meanwhile It's a wink and a wiggle and a giggle on the grass And I'll trip the light fandango A pinch and a diddle in the middle of what passes by It's a very short road from and the punch to the paunch and the pouch and the pension. It's a very short road to the 10,000th lunch and the belch and the grouch and the sigh. In the meanwhile, there are mouths to be kissed before mouths to be fed and a lot in between in the meanwhile. And a girl ought to celebrate what Well, a, a very Merry Christmas to Mrs Boyle. <laughs> Merry Christmas, P. Geraldine Turner here. Yes. Um, of course, Mrs Boyle is a reference to the character you're now playing around Australia in Agatha Christie's The Mousetrap. It must be yeah. good to be back on stage. Who knew? It is great to be back on stage, and it's a terrific play. In fact, when I first read it, I thought, oh, you know, yeah, I'll say yes to this, and this is... Um, you know, it's a good company of actors and, you know, it'd be good after COVID to be back on stage and all that sort of stuff, have yeah, a job. Yeah. It's always good for us. But I thought, I didn't think it was as good a play as it actually is. And the first read, the first table read, it just leapt off the page. And it's it's very funny. It's intriguing. It's mysterious. All of those things that Agatha Christie things are. And at the end of the play, you feel sorry for the killer. What more do you need in a night out? Perfect. Perfection. Perfection. <laughs> we probably can't say a lot about the no, play. No, it's funny being in a play you can't talk about. Yes, yeah, so who done it? We don't want to give anything at all away. But, no. uh, but you mentioned that terrific troupe of actors that you're working alongside. Fantastic, yes. yes. Fantastic, yes. Um, a great group of actors. Jerry uh, Connolly and Tom Conroy. And I've never worked with jo- Jerry. All these years, we've never oh. worked together. We've known each other for years, but it's great to work with him. Um, who else did you say? Tom Conroy. Oh, he's wonderful in it. Yeah. Uh, Alex Rathgaber. Yes, Charlotte Friels, uh, Anna, Anna O'Byrne, Lawrence Boxall, 
uh, Adam Murphy. I think that's everyone. Yes, that's yeah. One, yeah. And uh, it great company. And strangely enough, we're all most of us are musical theatre actors as well. Are there any songs in the the Mastra? Well, you know. You'll have to come along and see, but yes. Oh, you're not giving anything away. No. Well, we do do a bit of a song at the end, I think, yeah, so yeah. Can, can say that. Yeah, it was Robin Nevin's idea. Well, directed, of course, by the great Robin Nevin. Absolutely right. Yes, yeah. and she's done a marvellous job, I have to say. As I say, it, it, it really springs off the page. And although we're doing, you know, part of the deal is having the original set of The Mousetrap, the original music, which is very good and apt, um, we could do our own put our own interpretations into things, obviously, and have, have different costumes and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, Robin's done a marvellous job, I think. It's, it's, yeah. very, um, it's very well played, I think. Yeah. Very well played. Well, she's a very talented director, of course. She is. I've worked there lots over the years. Somebody who really can mine the text for all of the detail, which obviously exists in yes, this production. Yes, absolutely it's right. It's very clear. And, it is clear. And also to trust the text, which a lot of directors don't do these days, might I say. They put their own stamp on something which is not trusting the text. It's kind of changing the text to suit what they want the play to be. Yeah, yeah. And and this is really just going with it, trusting the text yeah. with a group of actors. You've played the Sydney season and the Brisbane season mm-hmm. and you're about to open in Adelaide. That's right. Yeah. It'll be fun. And we're staying near that lovely Grote Street Market So, because we're playing Her Majesty's Theatre, which has been renovated and it's absolutely wonderful. You were there earlier in the year. I was too, there earlier too. in the year doing that Sondheim concert and... Uh, Yes, it's, I love that theatre, but now that it's been renovated and really well renovated backstage as well, because often when theatres get renovated, you know, the dressing rooms don't get renovated. They're the same as they were 50 years ago, you know. But backstage has been renovated as well at, at Her Majesty's and it's wonderful. So, yes, that's over the road from that marvellous market, which I think is the best market in Australia. So, and we're staying near there too, so it'll be great. I'm looking forward to Adelaide. Um, the first two weeks of January, I think, we play in Adelaide. So, yeah. and, then, and then Perth, of course, which is another theatre which has been undergoing some renovation. His Majesty's, yeah. yes, it looks wonderful what they've done there. And I've never played there. I've played downstairs, done cabaret downstairs, but I've never played at the theatre. And we do a, a quite a long Melbourne season before that, playing at the comedy. So it'll, the play will look really good in the comedy. It'll be great. And you come back to Sydney for Riverside, eh? Yes, we're going to Canberra Theatre Centre in May. Okay, you are all over the place. We're all over the place. And, and it's selling out everywhere. I mean, it's astonishing. And audiences are absolutely loving it. And I, I think, you know, um, I ran into Colin Friels the other day at the airport because he was picking up Charlotte, who's in the show, his, his daughter. And um, he said he thinks he loved it too when he came to see it. And he said he thinks that audiences are loving it so much because it's so authentic. You know, and, and I think it is. The way we play it is authentic. And there's something comforting about having a box set and actors actually talking to each other. Yeah, you know? yeah like an old-fashioned play. Like an old-fashioned play. So yes, beautiful. that part of it is old-fashioned, but as I say, it's comforting. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not... It's still relevant, you know. Everything about the play is relevant today, so... And obviously there's a hunger from audiences for that, that style of theatre because it's, it's selling really well. Oh, selling incredibly well. It's fantastic. Yeah. I mean, you know, the longest-running play in the world. There's got to be something going for it, I suppose. 70 years. 70 years, yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, another milestone for you, and of course um, theatre in Australia, is uh, last month in November we had the 50th anniversary of the opening of... Uh, her Majesty's Theatre in Sydney, or the yes. reopening, and 50 years for you, um, a yeah. little night music. Oh, my God, yes, I know. I played Petra all those years ago. And, uh, yes, I remember it, 30th of November it was, um, and I remember it very well. And uh, it was a marvellous production, um, the original uh, production from Broadway. And 
directed by George Martin out here. And uh, it was fantastic, a great cast and uh, a wonderful season before its time, I suppose, really, because we didn't really have body mics then. You know, you had to sort of sing out Louise, you know. You had to kind of, there were a few shotguns across, across the front of the stage and you had to have big voices, which happily I did. Yeah. So that was the show where, because Petra sings that marvellous song, The Miller's Son, in Act Two, and um, I think it was it was the show where people, I had done No No Nanette before that for J.C. Williamson's, but this was the show where people went, who's that girl? Yeah. You know, so it was really like the beginning of my musical theatre career, I guess. Mm. And a few wonderful anecdotes are shared in your uh, your terrific book, your oh, biography, uh, you. Turner's uh, Turn, Turn yeah. uh, which was released this year as well. It was, yes. Yeah. Yes, that's right. I wrote it during lockdown, give me something to do. And got a publisher. You know, it takes a while to do all of that and then do work with the editor and everything. And yes, it was released earlier this year and still selling quite well, I think. So that's good. So the Madge, that reopening, that was uh, the, the original theatre had burnt down, hadn't it? It had. That's yeah, right. So they rebuilt it. They did. And of course, you know, just like history in Sydney, we've pulled it down now. You know, it's a block of apartments yeah. in Key Street, um, Sydney, up near the Central Station. It was a marvellous theatre. I used to love working there. Because... Yeah. Private people owned it too, so it they really created a great family atmosphere at the match. Mm-hmm. You always felt like you were coming home. You yeah. know, it was a really good theatre to work in, but sadly gone, like a lot, a lot of theatres in Sydney. A lot of great shows played there over the years, of course. Mm. Uh, I remember seeing Boy From Oz there. And, Chorus uh, Line, for goodness sake. Yeah, Big River. Oh, uh, That's right. I always thought that wouldn't be a hit, you know, and it was a huge yeah. hit. I was yeah. wrong about that. Beauty and the Beast. Yes. I was, I, Chorus Line, I remember that very well because I went to the Gypsy Run. Um, and it was the first time they had an audience after rehearsing for so long. And I sat right at the back of the theatre and I just thought my life had changed when I saw that show. I just thought it was one of the most marvellous things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah. To this day, I, be- I think that. And uh, God, it was good. What a good show that was. So the opening of Night Music and the opening of of the Madge, was it a glittering occasion? Was, was everybody there, politicians? Darling, and... the world was there, yeah. yes. Also, Gladys Moncrief was there. She was an ageing diva by then, and um, I met her that night, and that was a wonderful thing to meet our Glad, you know. It was just great. Fantastic. Yes, the world was there. Uh, Was there a big party? Oh, yeah, big party in the foyer, in all the foyers, you know, all the upper levels and everything. And, uh, yeah, in fact, when we opened, I think some of the theatre wasn't quite finished. You know, I mean, finished enough to open, but they still had painting to do and things like that, you know. So it was really a work in progress. Yeah. Very sad to see it go, as you, you mentioned. Absolutely. There. I did Swinney Todd there too. Yeah. And and also um, that terrific production of um, HMS Pinafore by VSO did with Paul Eddington. I did that there too. I did a lot of shows there yeah. over the years. Yeah. Well, uh, Geraldine, it's always great for stages to catch up with you. Um, at Christmas time. At Christmas time. And Geraldine's got a job! <laughs> <laughs> Continued success with the mousetrap as Thank it you, tours darling. around Australia. And thank very... you and happy Christmas to all your listeners of all your fantastic podcasts. Oh, thank you. Thank you, G. And happy Christmas to you and the, the wonderful Brian Castle's Onion and, of course, your, your adorable children, Claude and, Claude and Pearl. Claude and Pearl, our groodles, yes. yes. Gorgeous. Yeah, happy Christmas. Happy Christmas, darling. And a
been asked to write it. Oh, I have written a piece for the book about the 50 years of the... Because I was in the Thripney Opera that opened the Drama Theatre, you know, 50 years ago. So uh, I've written this piece about... Not about the opening, funnily enough, but about... But Gloria Dawn was in... She played Mrs Peacham, and I played Jenny, Diver. And uh, <laughs> one... She was all... Gloria was... I mean, I idolised her. From the first moment in rehearsal, I thought, who is she? She is unbelievable. She'd sit there knitting, you know, not really talking to anyone. And everyone just very realised they couldn't say, you know, F-U-C-K or... They, they couldn't swear around her. You just wouldn't do it. You know? And uh, I mean the men in those days, the boys. And, um, and she would get up, she'd put her knitting down, get up, boom, and sing. And you think, oh, my God, li listen to that coming from that little kind of woman, you know, slightly plump, really sweet-faced, and it was like this just took you somewhere else, what, what came out of her mouth. And um, I was so obsessed with her, and she never really spoke to me. You know, I was just someone who should have been playing Polly, which Jim wanted me to do, who insisted and fought with Jim for months and ended up playing Jenny. I said, best song, black dress, you know, that's it, do the tango, boom. I'm not going to do 11 songs and wear all the costumes. He tried to seduce me with that kind of argument, and I wouldn't do it. And I was probably too young. and all, I mean, who knows? She was a whore. She could have been any age. It didn't really matter. And um, so I used to watch Gloria like a hawk. I mean, I used to literally watch her on the stage, but I watch her from the wings. If, if uh, I watched the whole rehearsal. I knew everything she did, literally everything, all her songs. And one Saturday at the matinee, uh, about 10 minutes before we went up, the stage manager came and said, anyone heard from Gloria Dawn? Of course, before mobile phones and everything. And we all said no. She was always there an hour before the show. She was always absolutely dressed and made up half an hour before the show, doing a knitting or whatever she did. Not there. Not there at 10 to 2. And um, she, he said, well, I don't know what to do. You know, this is like really... I said... Don't worry, I know it all. I know all the moves, I know all the songs. I said, he said, what are you talking about? I said, I've been watching her, I've been studying her, I know, literally know it, I can do it, I can do this. And he said, oh, I said, look, Kiralee, the adorable and beautiful Kiralee Nolan, who was one of the whores with me, I said, she's got a fabulous voice, she'd love to play this part. She was going, <gasps> rushed in and started putting on my dress. I went into Gloria's room, put on her first act costume, and literally three minutes before two o'clock, the, the door of the dressing room said, I knew I'd find you in my costume, she said. Because <laughs> we didn't have understudies. Yeah. Because Jim believed if you don't have an understudy, no one gets sick. Yeah. And it always worked until this particular moment and that time in the Rocky Horror Show when I went on. But it was really kind of unbelievable. And she'd been caught. There was some big parade that had gone. So she'd had to abandon her car at Central or something and there were crowds, you know what I mean? And like, and there, of course, no telephones and no a way of communicating. And so she'd had to try and weave her way all of that way down the... Uh, yes, I wouldn't imagine there would be anything that would stop Gloria Dawn Nothing stopped. Three minutes. Yes. She made me take that off now. She said, ah, sweat to walk. She put it on. I put my black dress on and boom, we started. So that was it. So, of course, 50 years since the drama theatre opened. It was also 50 years since Her Majesty's Theatre opened, which I discussed with Geraldine Turner in that previous conversation that we just just listened to. Did you ever play The Madge in Sydney? I did. Only once. 
precipitous. When he looked at the top row of people, it was like they were sitting on the edge of a cliff. Like literally, you know... Uh, oh my God, that truck. <laughs> so we're doing this on the footpath. <laughs> no, we're not. Yeah. But it was all... I, I remember it being almost vertical. That's how I... Uh, in my mind, whether or not that's true. Right. But I remember looking at the last row of the theatre and literally had to put your head back. <laughs> I, I always felt like a mountain goat when I was up there. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what it looked like from the stage. And I, I've never sat in it, so... And, and I did uh, an Alan Ackbourne play called Bedroom Farce with, of course, the incredible Ruth Cracknell and Ron Hedrick. They played my parents-in-law. And, um, it was a great cast. Barry, yeah. Barry Creighton was Barry also Creighton was in it. Carmen. Duncan. Absolutely wonderful. Shane played my husband. Shane Porteous. Yes. But I do remember in, in Bedroom Farce that um, the... I forget what, what happened, but I ended up in bed with Rev with Ruth Cracknell as her daughter-in-law sort of in hysterics about the son sort of dumping me or something. As far as I remember, I, I, I can't quite remember what it was. And, but it was a, an absolutely hilarious experience, I can tell you. And, an annual tradition of the stage's Christmas episode also is uh, a, a beautiful Christmas song called Christmas Will Find Us Wherever We Are, which was written by uh, Ron Crager and Tina Tessina. And I spoke to Ron, this is a couple of years ago, about the, the evolution of that song, how they come to write it. So let's revisit that conversation with Ron and then have a listen to the beautiful song. We had the, uh, well, I had the great fortune of working with you while you were, were in Sydney. We did a little cabaret show. And uh, you introduced me to a song that you wrote, a Christmas song. Yeah, I... A dear friend of mine, Tina Tassina, and yes, that's her name, uh, we met at an ASCAP songwriters workshop, and that would be the equivalent of the Australian APRA. Anyway, we hit it off and became dear friends and actually became roommates. And while we were roommates, decided to write a Christmas song every year for our Christmas card. And we were kind of taking our cue from Alfred Burt, who had done the same thing back in the 50s. Anyway, we did it for several years, and one year we happened to be in Hawaii in late November, and we still had to write the song. And well, Tina looked out the window and saw, this year it's palm trees and warm ocean breezes, and that became the start of the song Christmas Will Find Us Wherever We Are. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful song. Um, I fell in love with it straight away, and we managed to have it recorded uh, this year by a vocalist by the name of Lauren Schmutter, who is based in Albury, Wodonga. And uh, we can play it for the listener today. That's great. You know, she did a beautiful job of it. I swear it sounds like a Disney character. A and Disney I mean print. that in a nice way. Yeah, absolutely. I know exactly, exactly what you mean. So uh, we're going to listen to your, your terrific Christmas song. Thanks, Ron, for joining us from Kentucky. All the best. Have a beautiful Christmas. Thank you, Pete. Merry Christmas. This year it's palm trees and warm ocean breezes. The next may be snowfall and even some sneezes. Nobody knows where December may find us. A jet plane can put half the planet behind us In this tiny new world Home can change 
But wherever we live, love is not far away. At home or afar, each of us has a star. And Christmas will find us wherever we Christmas will find us wherever we are, uh, uh, sung beautifully by a vocalist called Lauren Schmutter. Um, I love that song, don't you, Kate? I do. Yeah, it's nice Beautiful, to hear it. Beautifully sung. Nice to hear it every year. Um, so what are you doing for Christmas? Well, I'm spending Christmas... We're going to lunch on Christmas Eve. My son and his wife and my absolutely adorable granddaughter, the Chew. And then I'm spending the night with them. And then we're opening presents in the morning, so... I, I'm looking forward to that. It's, it's lovely watching children open things, regardless. They don't care what it is. You know, it's a box or a they think. So, and then I'm spending most of the holidays going to the movies with a friend. I'm seeing my brother, in, who lives in Katoomba, and my friends who live in Katoomba. So... We're keeping very busy. I am. Yeah, yeah. And tell me what you are doing, as if I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, the theatre is an illusion, Kate. Um, I, I'm going to be in Hawaii. So, um, oh, my 
Melekilikimaka, which is um, that, that old Bing Crosby song uh, that yes. he did with the Andrews sisters. That's right. Um, How fantastic. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to uh, oh, spending some, some time with some mates over there and having Christmas and then going home in January to oh. for a week to see my mum. Oh, how lovely. Yeah. Have you ever been before? I've been to Honolulu. This time I will be on Kona. <gasps> Kona. Where, where the volcano is. I know. Yeah. And it's... Look as if it's gearing up a bit too at the minute, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. So um, <laughs> it's bound to be lots of fireworks. <laughs> what a wonderful thing to do! I've only ever been there once. I loved it. I thought it was. I went to Maui, and uh, spent about three weeks in Maui, and it was incredible. Yeah, it's a beautiful place. I, I know flowers, beautiful people, beautiful place, great drinks. Well, here we are, the season finale of um, season five of the podcast um we'll return briefly in february for a mini series of spotlight replays um it's going to be a celebration of the drag performers that have been interviewed over the past five Aww. years of the podcast and shared over the fortnight of the uh, world pride in sydney of course yeah so wow that's going to be huge isn't it's it? it's going to be great yeah. um and then stages will come back uh, full-time in April with season six of the podcast, Conversations with Creatives About Craft and Career. Thank you to my guests today, Rhonda Birchmore, Ron Crager, Lauren Schmutter, Tony Sheldon, Geraldine Turner, and the divine Kate Fitzpatrick. <laughs> thank you, Kate. It's always lovely to catch up with you. Yeah, you too. Um, thank you, too, to the publicists who have been a great support of the podcast and connecting us to great people that we've had the delight of interviewing um, over the year. Um, and a special thank you to Brian Castles-Onion for his research in the opera world and other dear friends whose feedback I rely upon to make sure that the, the podcast hits all the right spots. Thank you to the guests who have been so generous and so fascinating and, and so willing to be a part of the podcast. And thank you to everyone for listening. I really do appreciate your enthusiasm through texts, emails and comments on social platforms. Uh, we wish you all a very joyous Christmas and a happy new year. We look forward to joining you and uh, the whole cast of fabulous people in season six of The Stages podcast. Happy Christmas, Kate. Happy Christmas, darling. And thank you. And happy new year. Uh, yes, indeed. 2023. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and we'll catch you next time on Stages. Stages.